0: chapter 27 of malcolm by george macdonald this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by devora allen chapter 27 lord gurnon when his housekeeper returned from church lord lassie sent for her sit down mrs courthope he said i want to ask you about a story i have a vague recollection of hearing when i spent a summer at this house some 20 years ago it had to do with a room in the house that was never opened there is such a story my lord answered the housekeeper. The late Marquis, I remember well, used to laugh at it and threaten now and then to dare the prophecy, but old Eppy persuaded him not, or at least fancied she did. Who is old Eppy? She's gone now, my lord. She was over a hundred then. She was born and brought up in the house, lived all her days in it and died in it, so she knew more about the place than anyone else. Is ever likely to know, said the Marquis, superadding a close to her sentence. "'And why wouldn't she have the room opened?' he asked. "'Because of the ancient prophecy, my lord.' "'I can't recall a single point of the story.' "'I wish old Eppie were alive to tell it,' said Mrs. Courthope. "'Don't you know it, then?' "'Yes, pretty well. But my English tongue can't tell it properly. It doesn't sound right out of my mouth. I've heard it a good many times, too, for I had often to take a visitor to her room to hear it, and the old woman liked nothing better than telling it.' But I couldn't help remarking that it had grown a good bit, even in my time. The story was like a tree. It got bigger every year." "'That's the way with a good many stories,' said the Marquis. But tell me the prophecy at least." "'That is the only part I can give just as she gave it. It's in rhyme. I hardly understand it, but I'm sure of the words. Let us have them then, if you please." Mrs. Courthope reflected for a moment, and then repeated the following lines. THE LORD CUHA WOULD sup ON THREE thalms O COLD iron. THE AIR CUHA WOULD CAE THE BASTARD AND Kerna, THE MAID CUHA WOULD TINE HER MAN AND HER bairn, LIFT THE SNECK, AND ENTER AND ferna. "'That's it, my lord,' she said in conclusion. "'And there's one thing to be observed,' she added, "'that that door is the only one in all the passage that has a SNECK, as they call it.' "'What is a SNECK?' asked his lordship, who was not much of a scholar in his country's tongue." "'What we call a latch in England, my lord. "'I took pains to learn the scotch correctly, "'and I've repeated it to your lordship word for word.' "'I don't doubt it,' returned Lord Lossie. "'But for the sense I can make nothing of it. "'And you think my brother believed the story?' "'He always laughed at it, my lord, "'but pretended at least to give in to old Eppy's entreaties.' "'You mean that he was more near believing it "'than he liked to confess?' "'That's not what I mean, my lord.' "'Why do you say pretended, then?' "'Because when the news of his death came— some people about the place would have it that he must have opened the door some time or other. How did they make that out? From the first line of the prophecy. Repeat it again. The Lord Koha would sup on three thorns of cold iron," said Mrs. Courthope with emphasis, adding, The three she always said was a figure three. That implies it was written somewhere. She said it was legible on the door in her day, as if burnt with a red-hot iron. And what does the line mean? Eppie said it meant that the lord of the place who opened that door would die by a sword wound. Three inches of cold iron, it means, my lord. The Marquis grew thoughtful. His brother had died in a sword duel. For a few moments he was silent. "'Tell me the whole story,' he said at length. Mrs. Courthope again reflected, and began. "'I will tell the story, however, in my own words, reminding my reader that if he regards it as an unwelcome interruption, he can easily enough avoid this bend of the river of my narrative.' by taking a shortcut across to the next chapter. In an ancient time there was a lord of Lossie who practised unholy works. Although he had other estates, he lived almost entirely at the house of Lossie, that is, after his return from the east, where he had spent his youth and early manhood. But he paid no attention to his affairs. A steward managed everything for him, and Lord Gurnan, for that was the outlandish name he brought from England, where he was born while his father was prisoner to Edward Longshanks, Trusted him for a great while, without making the least inquiry into his accounts, apparently contented with receiving money enough to carry on the various vile experiments which seemed his sole pleasure in life. There was no doubt in the minds of the people of the town, the old town that is, which was then much larger, and clustered about the gates of the house, that he had dealings with Satan, from whom he had gained authority over the powers of nature, that he was able to rouse and lay the winds, to bring down rain to call forth the lightnings and set the thunders roaring over town and sea. Nay, that he could even draw vessels ashore on the rocks, with the certainty that not one on board would be left alive to betray the pillage of the wreck. This and many other deeds of dire note were laid to his charge in secret. The town cowered at the foot of the house in terror of what its lord might bring down upon it, as a brood of chickens might cower if they had been hatched by a kite, and saw, instead of the matronly head and beak of the hen of their instinct, those of the bird of prey projected over them. Scarce one of them dared even look from the door when the thunder was rolling over their heads, the lightnings flashing about the roofs and turrets of the house, the wind raving in fits between, as if it would rave its last, and the rain falling in sheets. Not so much from fear of the elements, as for horror of the far more terrible things that might be spied careering in the storm. And indeed, Lord Gurnon himself was avoided in like fashion, although rarely had anyone the evil chance of seeing him, so seldom did he go out of doors. There was but one in the whole community, and that was a young girl, the daughter of his steward, who declared she had no fear of him. She went so far as to uphold that Lord Gurnan meant harm to nobody, and was in consequence regarded by the neighbours as unrighteously bold. He worked in a certain lofty apartment on the ground floor, with cellars underneath, reserved, it was believed, for frightfulest conjurations and interviews, where, although no one was permitted to enter, they knew from the smoke that he had a furnace, and from the evil smells which wandered out, that he dealt with things altogether devilish in their natures and powers. They said he always washed there, in water medicated with distillments to prolong life and produce invulnerability. But of this they could, of course, know nothing. Strange to say, however, he always slept in the garret, "'as far removed from his laboratory as the limits of the house would permit. "'Whence people said he dared not sleep in the neighbourhood of his deeds, "'but sought shelter for his unconscious hours in the spiritual shadow of the chapel, "'which was in the same wing as his chamber. "'His household saw nearly as little of him as his retainers. "'When his tread was heard, beating dull on the stone turnpike, "'or thundering along the upper corridors in the neighbourhood of his chamber or of the library, "'the only other part of the house he visited.' Man or maid would dart aside into the next way of escape, all believing that the nearer he came to finding himself the sole inhabitant of his house, the better he was pleased. Nor would he allow man or woman to enter his chamber any more than his laboratory. When they found sheets or garments outside his door, they removed them with fear and trembling, and put others in their place. At length, by means of his enchantments, he discovered that the man whom he had trusted had been robbing him for many years— all the time he had been searching for the philosopher's stone, the gold already his had been tumbling into the bags of his steward. But what enraged him far more was that the fellow had constantly pretended difficulty in providing the means necessary for the prosecution of his idolized studies. Even if the feudal lord could have accepted the loss and forgiven the crime, here was a mockery which the man of science could not pardon. He summoned his steward to his presence, and accused him of his dishonesty, the man denied it energetically, but a few mysterious waftures of the hand of his lord set him trembling, and after a few more, his lips, moving by a secret compulsion, and finding no power in their owner to check their utterance, confessed all the truth, whereupon his master ordered him to go and bring his accounts. He departed all but bereft of his senses, and staggered home as if in a dream. There he begged his daughter to go and plead for him with his lord, Hoping she might be able to move him to mercy, for she was a lovely girl, and supposed by the neighbors, judging from what they considered her foolhardiness, to have received from him tokens of something at least less than aversion. She obeyed, and from that hour disappeared. The people of the house averred afterwards that the next day, and for days following, they heard at intervals moans and cries from the wizard's chamber, or somewhere in its neighbourhood, certainly not from the laboratory but as they had seen no one visit their master, they had paid them little attention, classing them with the other and hellish noises they were but too much accustomed to hear. The steward's love for his daughter, though it could not embolden him to seek her in the tyrant's den, drove him at length to appeal to the justice of his country for what redress might yet be possible. He sought the court of the great Bruce, and laid his complaint before him. That righteous monarch immediately dispatched a few of his trustiest men-at-arms, UNDER THE PROTECTION OF A MONK, WHOM HE BELIEVED A MATCH FOR ANY WIZARD UNDER THE SUN, TO ARREST LORD Gurnon AND RELEASE THE GIRL. WHEN THEY ARRIVED AT LOSSY HOUSE, THEY FOUND IT SILENT AS THE GRAVE. THE DOMESTICS HAD VANISHED, BUT BY FOLLOWING THE MINUTE DIRECTIONS OF THE STEWARD, WHOM NO PERSUASION COULD BRING TO SET FOOT ACROSS THE THRESHOLD, THEY SUCCEEDED IN FINDING THEIR WAY TO THE PARTS OF THE HOUSE INDICATED BY HIM. HAVING FORCED THE LABORATORY AND FOUND IT FORSAKEN, they ascended, in the gathering dusk of a winter afternoon, to the upper regions of the house. Before they reached the top of the stair that led to the wizard's chamber, they began to hear inexplicable sounds, which grew plainer, though not much louder, as they drew nearer to the door. They were mostly like the grunting of some small animal of the hog kind, with an occasional one like the yelling roar of a distant lion. But with these were now and then mingled cries of suffering. So fell and strange that their souls recoiled as if they would break loose from their bodies to get out of hearing of them. The monk himself started back when first they invaded his ear, and it was no wonder then that the men at arms should hesitate to approach the room. And as they stood irresolute, they saw a faint light go flickering across the upper part of the door, which naturally strengthened their disinclination to go nearer. If it weren't for the girl, said one of them in a scared whisper to his neighbour. I would leave the wizard to the devil and his dam. Scarcely had the words left his mouth when the door opened, and out came a form. Whether phantom or living woman none could tell. Pale, forlorn, lost, and purposeless, it came straight towards them, with wide, unseeing eyes. They parted in terror from its path. It went on, looking to neither hand, and sank down the stair. The moment it was beyond their sight they came to themselves and rushed after it, but although they searched the whole house, they could find no creature in it, except a cat of questionable appearance and behavior, which they wisely let alone. Returning, they took up a position whence they could watch the door of the chamber, day and night. For three weeks they watched it, but neither cry nor other sound reached them. For three weeks more they watched it, and then an evil odor began to assail them, which grew and grew, until at length they were satisfied that the wizard was dead." They returned, therefore, to the king, and made their report, whereupon Lord Gurnan was decreed dead, and his heir was fief. But for many years he was said to be still alive, and indeed whether he had ever died in the ordinary sense of the word was to old Eppie doubtful, for at various times there had arisen whispers of peculiar sounds, even strange cries, having been heard issue from that room, whispers which had revived in the house, in Mrs. Courthope's own time, "'No one had slept in that part of the roof "'within the memory of old Eppie. "'No one, she believed, had ever slept there "'since the events of her tale. "'Certainly no one had in Mrs. Courthope's time. "'It was said also that invariably, "'sooner or later, after such cries were heard, "'some evil befell either the Lord of Lossie "'or some one of his family. "'Show me the room, Mrs. Courthope,' "'said the Marquis, rising, as soon as she had ended. "'The housekeeper looked at him with some dismay. "'What?' said his lordship you an Englishwoman and superstitious.' "'I am cautious, my lord, though not a Scotchwoman,' returned Mrs. Courthope. "'All I would presume to say is—don't do it without first taking time to think over it.' "'I will not, but I want to know which room it is.' Mrs. Courthope led the way, and his lordship followed her to the very door, as he had expected, with which Malcolm had spied Mrs. Cattenaar tampering. He examined it well, and on the upper part of it found what might be the remains of a sunk inscription, so far obliterated as to convey no assurance of what it was. He professed himself satisfied, and they went down the stairs together again. End of chapter 27